Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking with Tyler, who runs the website PortfolioCharts.com. Tyler created this website back in 2015. It's an extremely useful collection of data about different asset classes, which is helpful for DIY investors trying to create portfolios. Additionally, the data isn't simply mathematical expressions of a portfolio, but presents the data in nice visualizations, which makes the data much easier to interpret and understand. Tyler has many different sample portfolios on the website, like Harry Brown's Permanent Portfolio or the Boglehead 3 Fund Portfolio, with backtesting tools to test their long-term performance. And users can attempt to create their own optimized portfolios for their own risk tolerance and goals. Tyler is very much a believer in the power of uncorrelated asset classes and their usefulness in creating a robust portfolio of index funds that's helpful to investors. I've used Tyler's resources extensively in the creation of my own asset allocation strategy. So I'm really psyched to talk to him. So welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's an honor to be on. Cool. So what was your investing journey? So how'd you get interested in investing? What did you try out before you got into your current asset allocation strategy? Well, I think like most people, I started just trying to learn myself. I'm an engineer by education, so I'm naturally into numbers and I'm always trying to optimize and learn about how things work. So like a lot of uh, young people who have a bit of money to invest, finally, I was trying to go out and find, pick the right funds. And so find the right companies to buy, find the right mutual funds to buy. So I would look at a lot of historical data, like last 10 year performance to try to find the best performers. And over several years of doing that, I realized I was just awful at it. I felt like I was always switching back and forth, trying to <laughs> always trying to find the, the thing I would buy when within six months, it felt like it was terrible. So I was always switching strategies. And then eventually I stumbled across a book by Harry Brown about the permanent portfolio called Failsafe Investing. And I think that was the first book that really clicked with me about how asset allocation works. And so thinking beyond just trying to buy low and sell high or find the best performers, it shows how to think about investing in terms of economic conditions and covering all the bases, no matter what happens. So you're not trying to predict anymore. You're trying to actually grow and protect your money, even in times of very high inflation or when the stock market goes crazy or when it totally falls apart, you're okay in, in any of those situations. So once that really sunk in and that mindset, that's when it kind of opened the new opportunities for me. I guess the next step after that was Again, I'm good with numbers. So I was going online and I was trying to find various tools that would help me model a permanent portfolio, you know, because I was a fan of things like FireCalc and some of these other popular calculators out there that help you look at your investments. And the vast majority of them I found didn't have the right assets. They didn't have gold. They didn't have the long-term bonds. They didn't have cash or they would model cash way too simplistically where it's like it's a fixed 1% interest rate forever. And that's not how actually cash works in the real world. Right. And so being good with spreadsheets myself, it's like, oh, I'll just make my own tools. And so I did a lot of work collecting the data and making some you know, simplistic charts to kind of try to model my own portfolio. And uh, I was sharing some of those pictures and charts on some of the, a few different forms I visit and I found that they were pretty popular. And so that's when I kind of, sort of the origin story of portfolio charts is showing, just trying to model my own portfolio, the permanent portfolio. And then learning over time how to do that and also discovering in that process that not only could I model that one portfolio, but my tools can model anything you want. And so armed with some of these tools, I started looking at other options to expand on that same Harry Brown mindset. And so I guess the next step in my transition was trying, if I were to take the permanent portfolio and add one more asset to it, just to try to boost the performance a little bit, what would that be? And playing with my tools and kind of doing different research, I kind of settled on small cap value. 
And that's how the golden butterfly came to be. And if you were look at the portfolio charts today, the one portfolio that probably stands out the most, it's probably the indicative of the, my mindset is the golden butterfly. And so that's generally how I invest today. And I'm always playing with numbers, trying to tweak and, you know, find different ways to do it. But eventually I got to a point where I was no longer feeling unsatisfied. I always feel like behind. And when I settled on the golden portfolio or the golden butterfly portfolio, it, I felt happy. And so I've, that's actually been a relief. So with that in mind, I've, my energy has been focused less on trying to improve my own investments anymore. And now I'm looking at, looking at trying to help educate other people to get to that same point with whatever portfolio they may choose for themselves. Very cool. And I'm wondering, did you invest through the 2008 2011 global financial crisis? Was that kind of an inspiration where you saw how pure stock portfolios performed? I think so. At the time in 2008, I was invested at the time, and that was in the period when I kind of didn't know what I was doing. I was picking the default stock funds or mutual funds in my 401k and just kind of leaving it alone. And so I think I was weirdly blessed at that time that I was and had just started a new job in the Bay Area in the 2008, 2009. And I was so focused on that that I was a little bit ignorant to the chaos going into my 401k account. So looking back like a, a year later, once things settled, I, it was actually horrifying to think about what I, how what I felt had been paying attention in real time to how low those lows got. So I, I wouldn't say that it was like, People think of that kind of situation and they talk about how it scared them into a better way to invest. For me, it was not quite so much that, but it was a wake-up call looking at that information, looking about that data and thinking about how you'd personally react in those type of situations that made me realize that, you know, that the typical ways to invest that at least I had been doing probably isn't the, something that's sustainable for me in the long run. So yeah, it, it definitely helps shake you into a new way of looking at things. Yeah, I definitely noticed the people who've invested through that period definitely have a different mindset. And I know that the permanent portfolio performed very well during that scenario and really mm -hmm. showed its strength as as a as an asset allocation and as a philosophy. So I I really wouldn't be surprised if that impacted some of your decisions there. It definitely yeah. influenced me. And I think another thing that influenced me is so I graduated college in two thousand. And that happened to be looking at the historical data, like the single worst time to graduate in terms of, or to start investing in, in yes. a really long time, because that was the beginning of the lost decade for the stock market. So mm -hmm. throughout the eighties and nineties, everyone got completely spoiled on stocks, just going through the roof all the time. And that's just what you do when every, all the common advice at the time, when I was first starting to invest is just buy a stock fund. And that's what, that's the way you make lots of money. Well, at the, I started saving money in 2000 when the stock market was ended up being underwater for a full decade. And so that 100% influenced my mindset where I have a different way of looking at things than some of your older investors that grew up through the 80s and 90s that got, in my opinion, got spoiled rotten. That yeah. I don't have the same, I don't put stocks in the same pedestal as some people. So I, I have a lot more open-minded to different ways to approach asset allocation. Yeah, absolutely. Or even those who have only invested since like 2011, 2012, they definitely yeah. have a different attitude towards this sort of thing. And yeah, mm -hmm. I, I invested through a pretty similar period. The 2000s definitely influenced me in a big way where it's easy to see on a spreadsheet that, oh, you're going to have a few drawdowns, but it's another thing to live through them and then have a complete lost decade where you don't make any money in stocks and just endure pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you have any other inspirations or influences besides Harry Brown? I know that was a major influence, but uh, were there any other thinkers that really influenced your approach? Right. So Harry's a big one, but I think the another one that had a really major impact on not just the way I think about investing, but on my life was Bob Clyatt, who is the author of the sandwich portfolio on the site. So Bob Clyatt was or is an artist. He, at the time, he was like a financial professional when he wrote a book called Work Less, Live More. And he retired from that financial career to become a pretty well-known sculptor. And he wrote the book about, it's somewhat a little bit about investing. He talks about the sandwich portfolio and ways to invest. You know, he has a finance background, but it's also a lot about financial independence and about, you know, thinking beyond just the day-to-day -day grind of working and earning money and, you know, to try to build a better life for yourself. 
And in contrast to some other writers who write about financial independence in the terms of like just retiring permanently and never working again and getting away from the rat race and just, you know, fishing all day or whatever, I focus mostly on what did he call it? Semi-retirement. So it's not, it's not, it's more about the FI part of the fire. It's financial independence instead of just retiring early. So that if from he turned that mindset into going from, it's not like he wanted to get out of finance just to go do nothing. He wanted to get out to become an artist. And so within that book, that was, I found that just insanely inspiring. And the other thing about his that really influenced me is he had a huge focus on spreadsheets. There was even like a CD in the back of the book, I remember, where you can download some of his spreadsheets to calculate different things about financial independence and investing and things like that. And that was absolutely a huge inspiration for me to build my own tools. I started working with his and I started tweaking them and building my own. And a lot of that mindset that I could directly point to that book, Work Less, Live More by Bob Clyde, as being one of the things that pushed me, one, towards financial independence and thinking beyond work income for everything you do, and two, towards thinking about spreadsheets and investment modeling. And so I would say without that book, I probably wouldn't be talking to you today. Very cool. Yeah. And I like that mindset where you're not necessarily trying to retire early and do nothing, but you're trying to retire early to do something that you're more passionate about. Yeah. Or just to be able to focus your life on the things that you find important without primary regard to how much money it makes. There's a lot of things that a lot of people would want to do They've over the years that you just kind of put to the side because you have to focus on important things to paying the bills. And that's that's normal life. But if you could set yourself up in a situation where that the money is no longer the primary driver for your decisions, then you could do a lot more things that it just opens up a whole nother, you know, path that you could do. Totally. So I know that you've achieved financial independence. So is that book one of the major inspirations behind financial independence or were there any other kind of motivations that, that really drove you to go after that? Oh yeah, that's like a whole separate conversation. But so the work less of more was a big important one for me at the time there was the work by Vicki Robin, you know, she wrote some good things about that. Great book. And Joe, yeah, Your Money of Your Life with Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez. Mm-hmm. I was a big, or I still am a big fan of Mr. Money Mustache and Jacob Fisker with Early Retirement Extreme. So yeah, there's been a lot of people over the years that would have influenced me in that. I think a lot of people. And was there any particular thing that really drove you to do that? Like something that happened in your life or your career? Oh man, that's a good question. I can't point to just one. There's been lots of things over time. Some of it, one one of thing I kind of go back to is getting to a point in my engineering career where I was at like, I would consider my dream job. And I was like an important, like lead designer for a really cool consumer electronic product. And like, this is my, going to be my big break. And I was, I was going to do this for the, for a long time. And then Drove into work one morning thinking about what I was working on and learned within the first 15 minutes that the entire company was fired and we were shut down. Oh my. So it's like one of those things where that was a wake up call that for all the things that you drive for in your life, you're never in full control of everything, even if you feel like you are. And so when I, at that time, I put so much of my identity into that job that losing it was a real difficult thing. And so after that, it's like, so what do I do? You know, everything, nothing after that feel like it's going to live up to it. I, I've worked at other good places before and since. So I'm not saying that, you know, it's don't feel bad for me, but it, it definitely helped refocus, helped me refocus on finding some more personal identity outside of what I do from a day to day and what I put on a business card, because life is about so much more than that, because that can go away in a heartbeat and you, you have no, you'll never know. Yeah, 100%. And that's definitely something that you don't really get until you experience an event like that. Like I, I've had a layoff in the past, so I completely understand how how that you feel like you're on one path and then the world can just change in an instant and throw you a curveball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's very interesting. So is the golden butterfly your actual investment allocation or have you done something different or made any modifications to that? I usually tell people that the, my personal money is about 90% golden butterfly, like as you'll see on the site, and about 10% other stuff. Okay. I generally, I try not to get into the 10% other stuff because I think it's a distraction. I think every, it, and everyone has their own personal situation where they have old 401ks with limited fund options. 
and you know stocks they've held on to for years that maybe they would want to sell but they don't want to because of the tax implications mm -hmm. so I, I like everyone i have a few of those things it makes up about 10 percent of what i invest in and 90 and the other 90 percent is the the golden butterfly strategy that i have and i've been very comfortable with it it's worked great for me cool so for those who aren't aware do you want to give a little brief overview of the golden butterfly and how that the how that approaches investing sure so the golden butterfly is like i mentioned earlier it's kind of built on harry brown's idea of building around diversifying economic conditions and so it has five parts to the portfolio it, and they're all equally weighted so 20 percent total u.s stock market 20 percent small cap value 20 percent long-term treasury bonds 20 percent short-term bonds and 20 percent gold and so those five things are kind of specifically selected to cover some, you know, very specific situations. So the the total stock market is for when the economy is going great, like in the 80s and 90s, and the stocks are going up all the time, or even since like 2011, like you said, everything is recovering and going bananas for a while that got people spilled again. Uh, but, but that's what the stock market allocation is for. Long-term bonds are a very a counterbalance to stocks and they're long-term as opposed to like intermediate because that long maturity helps makes them more volatile. A lot of people avoid bonds in a portfolio because, or they, the old school idea of bonds in a portfolio is to have the steady balance to stocks where you have the dependable bonds to balance the risky stocks. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the golden butterfly, it's a bit more of a risk parity concept where you actually want the volatile bonds that are equally volatile to stocks, but they move at different times to help balance them. And so by mixing multiple volatile combination of things that are non-correlated, you can actually buy low, sell high naturally in your rebalancing process, and, and you have a much more smoother ride in the process. So the long-term bonds are picked over intermediate bonds for that reason. The short-term bonds are the balance for when like stocks and bonds and gold and the whole market's doing terribly and the short-term bonds are there to save you. And that's like the cash flow portfolio. And that's actually for a long time, or at least it's been trendy over the last few years for people to like get rid of cash completely in a portfolio or short-term bonds. Like I think Dalio said, cash is trash for a while. Yeah. He said um, that right before the uh, 2020 market crash. Yeah. So. <laughs> and and now all of a sudden they're way back trendy again. If you look through Twitter or look at the accounts of a lot of the famous investors, uh, cash is now the hottest new thing to get into because the yeah. interest rates are finally rising. So suddenly when your short-term bonds are now up, you know, at five or 6%, like, okay, no, that's actually pretty great. And one of the other things that that's for is, uh, Believe it or not, short-term bonds are one of the better inflation hedges out there you can have. And that's kind of really counterintuitive based on the way people think about cash usually. You always lose money to inflation. But well, the short-term bonds, their interest rates aren't set in the vacuum. And even though they can't don't float with inflation perfectly like a short-term tips bond would, they do respond quite quickly because they turn over every year. And so we're into the higher interest rate. Bonds. So if you look historically since the 70s, cash, generally speaking, only trails inflation like more than a percent or two, like for more than a year, like maybe once or twice. So, you know, having a, a bit of cash in your portfolio, one helps you with liquidity, but also helps with some of the inflation worries as rates rise quickly. And then finally, gold is uh, the, I guess, the most controversial thing in the portfolio for a lot of the boglehead types. I don't say that in a mean way. I, everyone has a different perspective, but gold is the, the asset that's there for, I call it kind of the chaos asset. So mm -hmm. when everything feels like it's going to hell, when stocks are doing poorly, when no one trusts bonds and interest rates are rising, when there's geopolitical worry, gold is the thing that uh, more often than not will actually respond positively in those situations and help carry the day when a lot of the other things fall short. And so that's why if you look at a lot of the portfolio charts, not just in the golden butterfly, but in other asset allocations, a lot of the ones with gold tend to be actually the most dependable portfolios, even in the bad times of anything you can look at. And it, that's what makes it one of the more interesting assets to me. Yeah, it is one of the most interesting assets. One of the most interesting things about it is that people have such extreme opinions about it. So yeah. you either have people in the Warren Buffett school where they're like, this is just a shiny yellow rock and it's useless. And then mm -hmm. at the other end, you'll have people, this is the only asset you want to own because the entire world is about to implode. And it yeah. seems like you're either one or the other. Yeah. So I've learned a lot from your perspective on gold. 
Why do you think people have such extreme opinions about gold? That is a good question. Well, one of the things I've learned over the years is that there are multiple personalities that you can have when it comes to money and investing. Mm-hmm. And everyone has a different, it's not just like at a different portfolio, they have a completely different mindset about how investing is supposed to work. And so, you know, like some people like yourself are very intelligent when it comes to picking value stocks and you can understand the, the, it just makes sense when you buy a stock when it's cheap and you invest it until it's too expensive and you can sell it for a profit. That's like a very logical paradigm that you build your, your mindset around when it comes to how to make money in the markets. Gold requires a very different way of thinking about things where it's not so much about picking the one, evaluating an asset like a stock. You can't think about gold like you think about a stock where you, how is it valuated right now? There's no real valuation metric to to look at gold. People always say the expected returns of gold is always zero, but but that is like completely illogical when you look at the history and how volatile it is. If your expected returns model thinks that it's always an, an unchanging zero, then I would argue that's a failure of the model, not of the asset itself. So it takes a very different mindset. And so like I one example I've used in the past is like the difference between a hunter and a farmer when you're feeding a family. A stock picker is a bit more like has the hunter's mindset where you're training and learning how to go out and you get your crossbow and you got to figure out how to sit and track. And it's like a real, it's a whole effort and it's a skill to, to be able to identify your prey and to kill it and to feed your family. And that's actually a really amazing thing to be able to do. Not everyone could do that. Where investing in something with gold and other like asset allocations that are a bit more risk parity minded is more like being a farmer, where you, and even like a special kind of farmer, where you're not trying to predict the seasons and move things around, but you're like just taking the seeds from the fields where things do well that year and reallocating them to the other fields, or maybe they did poorly, but based on the weather's going to change all the time. And so, as on average, your entire land that you manage is going to make more than enough money for you to, to feed your family. And so I think that's why a lot of people get hung up on things like gold, because it doesn't fit the mindset that people are trained to do when it comes to investing and evaluating a security on its own merits alone, not really thinking about how it fits on a larger recipe. And you have to, once you think bigger, though, and start looking at the data and how that mixes in, and that's why I think sites like mine that have more types of assets and can visualize them easily to understand are important things because they help you think beyond the way you you feel like investing is supposed to work to see evidence of how maybe there may be other things involved and, and things that you can use to your own benefit. Wow. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I like the farmer versus hunter way of doing it. For me, I'm I'm definitely, I have the hunter mindset. I love doing that. I have, I love, I enjoy the thrill of it, but I also see the, that there's probably more evidence on the, uh, the farmer side of the equation and the asset allocation risk parity side of the equation. And I don't yeah, want and to completely rely on my skills as a hunter to achieve my financial goals. Well, any self-respecting farmer probably knows how to go out and hunt a deer if they need to. So that's where, that's one of the things I admire about you and the idea of being skilled at one type of investing, but kind of knowing your limits and having the a broad view of the different options. And so you can invest your money in something like the weird portfolio that's a stable way and kind of the similar style of the golden butterfly to manage your money no matter what happens so that you can have the you can afford the flexibility to go out and try to hunt your own stocks without worry about if you just have a bad time this year and it's just not going to work out you're still going to be just fine so having that mix of approaches is one of the more healthy things i think an investor can do and i 100% support that Awesome. Yeah. And I mean, a big part of it is I've seen the difficulties in actually predicting macroeconomic events. I've tried to do it and I've failed many times. I thought one thing was going to happen and something completely different happens. So I've definitely been informed by that approach where you definitely want an approach where you're not trying to predict the future because so often things can go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So back to gold. So do you ever worry that gold could be less of a diversifying tool in the future? So gold. One of the things that works well in the data is that gold performed so exceptionally well in the 70s and 2000s when stocks were doing poorly. So do you ever worry that that relationship with stocks would ever break down? The only thing that would give me pause is if the government ever banned the trading gold like they did back uh, before Bretton Woods. Like they think they 
when they confiscated gold back in the 1930s, that would right. be a problem. That would definitely maybe reevaluate. But no, I think like economically speaking, gold's not going anywhere. Like of all of the assets that you could possibly invest in, gold's actually been around longer than every single one of them. It's been around longer than stocks. It's been around longer than bonds. It's been around longer than any single currency in world history. So whether gold is going to constantly go up and down the way that some people try to have tried to explain it, like I personally don't buy into the, the story that it's the perfect inflation hedge because it's really not. It's more complicated than that. But I have no fear at all that gold is suddenly going to lose its value and not be a good diversifier in a portfolio. Yeah, I'm in agreement. And I think even in the short term, you can see that it has an uncorrelated relationship with stocks. Like I remember in March 2020, you would see on the bullion websites, they were all getting sold out. And you can kind of see that in the short term daily fluctuations, even gold is always off doing its own thing. And it's never, it's almost always completely uncorrelated with stocks. So I, yeah. I, I agree with you there. And the important thing to remember is uncorrelated is different from perfectly negative, negatively correlated. Right. So some people get weirded out that they look at the stock market falling and they see gold falling at the same time and think, aha, gold isn't the diversifier, but that's, that's different. That's negative correlation and that you're never going to have perfectly negative correlation all the time, or it actually wouldn't make you any money, but it's the uncorrelated where sometimes it goes up with it. Sometimes it doesn't and but it the fact that it has dances to its own drum that's actually the the more important thing and so gold is more uncorrelated with stocks than it is like some perfect negative correlation but that's actually a good thing it's just a little bit hard for to human brains to understand yeah you do hear that all the time like oh it's th this this year gold and stocks are down at the same time so it doesn't work anymore and people will definitely read into some short-term events mm -hmm. Actually, so you've heard that a lot lately about bonds. So 2022 was a weird year where bonds and stocks suffered at the same time. You mm -hmm. have a lot of people questioning whether it's actually a diversifying asset. What, what would you say to those people? This has been a really tough time for bonds, for sure, with the rising rates. And so one thing that I think bond skeptics have pointed out in the last few years is how the bond data from, when you're looking at historical data, the bonds have benefited from like consistently declining interest rates since 1981, basically. They're always going down, so they're kind of always making money. I guess what I would say to people that worry about bonds struggling now is that I put a lot of effort into portfolio charts to dig up older data. And so to fight past the recency bias that people get hung up on in the way in investments work. And part of that is doing a lot of hard work, especially on bonds, to get data going all the way back to 1970 and not just in the 1980 period where it was doing really well. And so I would encourage people who worry about bonds to go look at the data that I provide through 1970 through 1980. And in that time, interest rates were also just absolutely skyrocketing. They went from like in the fours or something like that around 1970 all the way up to something like... 15, 16%. And so you think about if bonds today get all the way up to 16%, people will be absolutely flipping out. Well, there's actually data for that. And so you can go and look at the historical record about how a portfolio using these bonds, even when the rates were going through the moon at an astronomical rate and how the portfolio is dead. And a lot of them are way more appealing than you probably would think. And so that's why having good historical data like that is actually really important to fight past that bias of uh, how you feel today and to see how other people have experienced even worse things in the past, how they dealt with it. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And even if you look during that period, during the uh, 1973 to 74 stock drawdown, bonds did help have a diversifying role and they in long-term bonds perform pretty well, even during this inflationary period. Like the way I look at it, you own long-term bonds for the big stock crashes. And during those periods, it almost always does well. Like 2022 really wasn't a big deal in terms of a drawdown. But if you look at a period like 29 to 32, long-term treasuries actually did quite well. And they also did well during that 73, 74 period. So I wouldn't just uh, write them off like a lot of people do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So what would you say to someone who says they don't want to own asset classes like gold or treasuries and they want to be 100% stocks because they've looked at the data and 100% stocks delivers the best returns and they would say, what's the point of owning these alternative asset classes? Don't they just weigh down a portfolio? What would you say to a skeptic like that? 
I guess my first reaction would be to you say the stocks have the best return. Well, by what measure? And what measure is important to you? If you're just looking at the average annual return, that's 100% correct. But in your personal account, you don't earn the average annual return every year. It goes up and down and you have a compound return. And so once you start accounting for the compound return that when you have losses, like if you have a 50% loss, then it requires a 100% gain just to get back to where you were. That has an eroding effect over the profits you make over time. And so the very, the high return, high volatile things actually with the money you earn, you may not, you're not earning nearly as much money as you think. And the other thing is like the, I was going to say the psychological side, but it's much more than psychological when it comes to drawdowns. Mm-hmm. The drawdowns matter. And so the the time in the middle, even if you have a high long-term average over 30 years, the drawdowns in the middle matter, not just to your psychological well-being and like, oh, you've got to sleep well at night, but also to your like your real world goals. Like when people talked about the risk of a portfolio, it's not like some esoteric standard deviation, oh, well, this one's high risk, but it's going to be high reward. So I'm going to get it for the reward. The risk is of a portfolio drawing down like a full stocks isn't that it has a standard deviation of, I'm just making it up, I don't know off the top of my head, of you know 10%. The risk is that when your kid is going to college that year and you need the money to help them pay for it, of your the stock market crashing that year and suddenly you no longer have the money to help support your kid for college. That's a, a very real thing and that for asset allocation beyond just investing in stocks can actually help you solve. And so for people who are into stocks just for the average return, I, I, I say more power to them. I don't, <laughs> I have that portfolio on my site, you know, for a reason. It's not like, I think it's a bad idea, but I guess I would suggest to think about other things that are important to you beyond just the average. What are the, your life goals that you have right now that you may need money for at a specific time? And how can you invest in a way so that you can plan for that so that money, you, you are not going to have to worry about the markets, the stock market failing you at the exact wrong time when you need the money most. I would also say that's especially important for retirees to the having proper asset allocation can have just a drastically helpful improvement of their safe withdrawal rates. So being able to minimize the volatility, even if it reduces the return, can, reduce, can increase your safe withdrawal rates by quite a bit. Yeah. And I remember once you wrote a great article comparing the stock market to a roller coaster. And you said, if you only knew the the average speed of a roller coaster, that's kind of like looking at the average returns of a stock market. Like it's, it's a, it's a combination of a bunch of really extreme speeds and changes. Yeah. I think like the average speed of like one of the most extreme highest rate of roller coasters in the world, the average speed is like 20 miles an hour. <laughs> so that's, it's a, it'd be like, if you only look at the average speed, you think that the school zone is no different than this roller coaster, but obviously that's not the case. So yeah, they, the context matters, the up and down matters, the acceleration, the deceleration matters. And so there's so much more to the experience of a ride than j- just the average. Yeah, absolutely. So you touched on safe withdrawal rates. So I think that that's an important aspect of these portfolios. So what do most folks misunderstand about the safe withdrawal rate and how that affects and how different asset allocations can impact the safe withdrawal rate? So I guess for just to start, what a safe withdrawal rate is in case people don't know. So that's the amount of money that you can take out of a portfolio every year. And you can increase that amount for inflation. And then from a historical backtesting perspective, you would have your total savings would have lasted at least 30 years. At least that's the classical definition. There's lots of ways to calculate this. You can look at different timeframes. You can look at you know different asset allocations and all that. So I would say the number one misnomer or misunderstanding that people have about safe withdrawal rates has to do with something I call data availability bias. And that what that means is that the vast majority of very famous studies from the Trinity study to the Bengen study, uh, Michael Kitkus, Wade Fowle, some very famous people have studied this at length and done a wonderful job, by the way. But the, the number one shortcoming of those studies is not in the calculations. They're all meticulous and they're very, they're quite good, but it's in the assets that they choose to study. And so if you look at all these studies, almost all of them will look at a single stock fund, usually the S&P 500, and a single bond fund, 
usually intermediate bonds, sometimes short-term, sometimes long-term, and sometimes the definition is actually a little bit vague. And it's not because they think that these are the only two things you'd invest in as a retiree, but it's because those are the two things where long stock history or long data histories are easily available. They're usually, they were published by Ibbotson Associates who keeps a record for these things going back to the 1870s. But that's introduces what I call data availability bias, because if you only look at that data from these two asset classes, then you get, it leads you towards some kind of biased conclusions about, well, you need to have at least 60% stocks to 80% stocks to have the highest withdrawal rates. And that's what the data shows. But in reality, and you and I know this, and everyone intuitively knows this, is that not all stocks are the same. U.S. stocks, U.S. large cap stocks like Apple are not like some Ethiopian micro cap. But if you just think about stocks as a class and you want 80% stocks, then you would somehow assume that, you know, all stocks, you could just, you still need 80% in your portfolio to have the highest withdrawal rate. And that's not how it works. And so that's one of the most interesting things that I've learned personally is modeling my own data using a whole bunch of different data that I've spent, you know, thousands of hours researching and accumulating and figuring out how to process is that when you actually model the real world historical data of different types of stocks and of different types of bonds and even different types of real assets like REATs and gold, and you mix those together, then the classic conclusions that you hear about all the time about things like the 4% rule that people treat like some law of nature, that's actually based on just investing in generic stocks and generic bonds, but other portfolios could have very different withdrawal rates. And also where you live has a huge impact, obviously, where in the U.S., the withdrawal rates are based on the U.S. dollar and U.S. inflation. But at the exact same investments in Europe, where you're on the euro and your local like Italian inflation can be very different. So when it comes to withdrawal rates, I, that's one of the things I've been most proud of about my own work is trying to expand on those people that I talked about, like Kitkis and Fowl and Bengen. And where they had some in, tremendous insight that influenced me a lot, I'd like to add to that by bringing into the discussion more types of portfolios and more types of assets that not everybody has had the, the privilege just because of a lack of data to look into. Yeah, absolutely. And you show on your website some really extreme differences in safe withdrawal rates for different portfolios. It definitely mm-hmm. opened up my eyes when I first saw it. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a... Uh, it's kind of stark when you get into it to the point where a lot of times when people first see it, they reject it. They think it's biased. They think it's cherry picked, but I go to great lengths to kind of publish my methodology. I always answer technical questions. If someone emails me, like I believe in earning trust through data. Not, don't just trust me because I am who I am. That's I'm not that type of person. So I've uh, received a lot of critique over the years, positive. I've reformed my methods over time and I feel pretty good about the numbers. So that gives me confidence to be able to share them to knowing that I have some people who are skeptical. Actually, it's quite helpful in getting better what you do. Yeah, totally. So one of the most counterintuitive articles that you wrote was about the concept of Shannon's demon, where Mm -hmm. you took, you mathematically showed how two asset classes that return zero could actually deliver a result for an investor when annually rebalanced in a portfolio. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that concept? Sure. I'm going to see if I could do that without getting into the math because I'm not sure I can remember the exact equation off the top of my head. So there is a very famous electrical engineer named Claude Shannon, who he's, as an aside, if you don't know who he is, you should look him up and read about his life. He's a fascinating guy and he's like father of logic theory and all the digital devices we live with today that wouldn't exist without him. But he was like a true genius. And one of his side observations, just because he's an incredibly smart dude, was about something that was termed Shannon's demon after him. And it was an observation that with two assets that return and have an average return of zero, one would be like just straight non-interest bearing cash that sits in the account. And one would be like a theoretical asset that, let's say it gains, I'm going to be extreme, gains 50% one year and loses it all the next and gains gains it and loses it again. It just oscillates back and forth. If you look over time, that also has an average return of zero. But if you, the thing he noticed is that if you have a portfolio of both of those assets with zero expected returns, 
and simply rebalance them every year as one went up and one went down and you always sell high and buy low, then it would have a positive return over time. And the two assets he was looking at was like, it ended up with like a 2% a year. I forget the exact ones, but that was like a really fascinating thing. And it, it, it's called Shannon's demon because it, it it's referencing a thermodynamic, similar thermodynamic problem where it's like, you feel like this demon in the box causing something to happen that shouldn't happen. But mathematically, his observation is borne out in the math. And so what it's really showing is that the volatility of assets do matter and they have an effect on the returns. And then when you combine assets, even with a zero expected returns for each of them, and you put them together in a portfolio, the mindset that most people have, even very famous, a lot of famous financial people I found have this idea is that you just take the average of the expected returns in your own portfolio, and that should be the expected return of the portfolio. But if you look at the historical data, when you take things, even with multiple things with zero expected returns and mix them together, once you add the magic of rebalancing, then it changes the actual performance where you can seemingly gain a return out of nothing. And so it's a bit more nuanced and complicated than Shannon's very simplistic idea to explain it. But yeah, I'd recommend people to look for the article on the website about that. And it kind of goes into a bit more depth and shows some examples with real portfolios and real assets. And I think there's one example of, a, again, you wouldn't expect where you have a stock portfolio, like if someone normally wants 100% stocks. And then you think about the idea of mixing in half gold and a lot of People, go, people assume gold has an expected return of zero over a very long period because it, it goes way up, it goes way down, but there's nothing driving its returns. You would think that it was something with a much lower return. If you added in 50-50 to a total stock portfolio, it would about half the return of the portfolio over time. But actually the opposite happened and it increased the return of the portfolio. So a portfolio of like stocks and gold can have a higher total compound return than a portfolio of stocks by itself or gold by itself. So it feels magical. And to someone who doesn't understand the math, it feels like maybe there's something broken in the calculations, but that's actually how asset allocation and some of the modern portfolio theory ideas, how they operate to generate surprising returns that people don't expect. Yeah, absolutely. And it I stumbled into this when I was back testing and I was testing out different allocations. And I was under that assumption that if you just average the, the Kager of the two different asset classes, that's mm-hmm. probably what the portfolio would deliver. And in almost every situation, the actual return of the portfolio was greater than the average of those two asset classes. And that, at first I thought something was wrong with what I was mm-hmm. doing. And it uh, consistently blew my mind that that's actually what happens. Yep. And so again, I think that also goes into a little bit of a mindset of how it, it takes understanding that really unintuitive thing that you just described of making having a higher return with two assets than you can even with one asset by itself. It takes that type of mindset to appreciate assets like gold. So if, if you're of the, the paradigm that your total portfolio is the average, the return of it is going to be the average of the average return of each asset, then you're probably going to stick to a whole bunch of high returning assets and kind of look them on an individual basis to try to tweak out every last you know decimal and in every individual stock that you buy. But if you, if your mind is open to the idea that by adding an asset that returns lower, it doesn't actually, its fundamentals are less important. And it's more about how it interacts with the other assets that can create returns seemingly magically. It's not magical, but it's all about the rebalancing act. Then that type of mindset will make assets like gold a lot more appealing. Yeah, absolutely. So people who advocate for risk parity portfolios, often they'll only talk about it in terms of like a retirement portfolio. Like you want to mm-hmm. maximize your safe withdrawal rate. Yep. You are an advocate of using these portfolios in the accumulation phase. So yep. why, why are you an advocate of a portfolio like this in the um, accumulation phase when someone is young? Like a lot of people have the attitude, oh, well, if I have 40 years to invest, I might as well be in the most aggressive high return asset classes as possible. Like, what would you say to a person who says something like that? I think that's a common mindset. And for people who are for that, I wish them all the best. But I would say that my, the reason I personally advocate for having a more steady portfolio over time, there's a few reasons, actually. One is psychological. And like, 
you think about, I think about myself, about how much effort I spent over the years trying to find the right portfolio to me and all the hits and misses. And I was happy until I was miserable and I was switching back and forth. And it, it took a whole lot of work to be able to find the portfolio that I legitimately believe in and I'm happy with and that I don't have to stress with the markets and I don't have to think about on a bad day when the Twitter's freaking out about some the market crashing one day and I don't even open it up because I know I'm just fine. And so when you find something that really works for you, the idea of like suddenly changing it the day you retire or even ramping into something totally different actually seems kind of alien. <laughs> like, why would I do that? So because of that effort it takes to, you know, find something that really you relate to on a personal and intellectual level, I, I believe in like looking at that portfolio now and just sticking with it. And another thing that I think maybe goes underappreciated is the volatility, again, that involves the accumulation portfolios. So beyond just the sleeping well at night, uh, I mentioned earlier the volatility and how it can nail you when you're like trying to pay for college for your, your kid at the, just when the year they turn 18. Right. Another thing is like when you think about, I'm just going to invest in an all stock portfolio up until I retire. And then I'm going to invest in a very conservative one, like the permanent portfolio. And so then we study them. Well, what happens when you get close to retirement and then 2020 hits and your portfolio, your whole stock portfolio just totally right. dissolves at the exact wrong time. And so that, even though you were doing your best to make the most return in the long time, there was a mismatch between your portfolio, your accumulation portfolio and your accumulation goal. And so I think there are way, different ways to approach that beyond just investing in one thing for life. I know people do glide paths to try to adjust things over time. But from my perspective, the simplest and most sustainable thing is to find a portfolio you believe in that is steady and dependable, that you don't have to stress about, and that can meet your goals both in the short term and the long term. And then take all that optimization energy that you spend on trying to, I'm going to find the best portfolio for today and the best one for next year and the best one for when I retire and spend that energy on trying to maximize your savings rate and to pile it into that study portfolio. So if you do that, if you have something that's like meets your needs, both financially and emotionally, and you're do, spending most of your time trying to just feed that portfolio with the most money as possible and invest over time, the odds are you're going to come out ahead of trying to game it just by switching around from how you allocate your money. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's a different story if you retire in a year, like you said, like 2020, or you retire yeah. in 2008 and suddenly your whole world is turned upside down and what you thought you had is now cut in half. Yeah. Like I remember the, in, I think, 2008, there was a, a famous thread on Bogleheads where they were, it's all about plan B. Okay, well, so we're all planning to retire all, and this, we all invested in like 60% stocks and 40% bonds, just like Jack Bogle said, well, what's plan B? Because that's not working right now. And that's kind of depressing when you think about it. So to be able to kind of plan ahead and find the portfolio that you, you won't feel compelled to participate in a thread like that. And you can just be comfortable living your life and continue with the plan, even in a bad situation. That's what I would hope for most people to strive for. Yeah. Meanwhile, if you're in one of these portfolios, you're down 10 or 20% and uh, mm -hmm. you don't really have to stress about what's happening. You know that you're pretty much covered. Yep. that That's exactly right. Yeah. So what would you say about international diversification? So there's a lot of investors who seem to say like, I'm going to be hundred percent US stocks. What would you say, do you think investors should allocate towards different different countries, stock markets, or do you think it's okay to mainly have a home country bias and invest in your own markets? So I think it's important to diversify your portfolio for different economic outcomes, but there are multiple ways to do that. One way if is to invest in US stocks with some of your money and international stocks. That's one way of hedging the, if the possibility that US stock market may not always do well. And so having international stocks is a way to solve that problem. Another way is to diversify in terms of economic outcomes or economic situations. And that's kind of the permanent portfolio economic condition mindset that Harry Brown had, where in the situation where stocks do poorly, he doesn't invest in international stocks, but he invests in long-term bonds and cash and gold to cover for those situations. And a third way to do that, I just had it on the tip of my tongue. Well, we'll come back to that. But I guess the point is that there are multiple ways to approach that, that 
problem. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, now I'm going to skip around. The third way, when it's like specifically something like gold, is that one thing that people don't appreciate about gold is that it is an international asset. And so it's not based solely in US dollars. It's something that's traded all around the world. So one can argue gold is actually an international asset of its own. So finding real assets that are traded globally is a third way to, to kind of address that problem. So coming back to your question, I think international investing is a very solid thing to do. And I totally recommend it. I especially recommend it for people looking at portfolios who don't live in the US. So like if you live in a smaller country like Sweden, investing some in your local market to kind of to support your local market and also track your portfolio to local things like local inflation and exchange rates is important. But it would be very important for you to invest in the larger Europe and the, in the US and in a global fund. For a US investor, it's a little bit, I still think it could be a good thing, but it's a little less important just because of how giant the US is and within a global fund. You invest globally, the US could be like, you know, between 40 and 60%, depending on the time frame you're looking at it. So that's why U.S. investors have kind of had U.S. buys over time because it's per, made up such a large percentage of the global market. But people in other countries, it, it's much more important for them to think internationally just to make sure that they've covered their bases and diversified properly beyond just their own smaller local markets. Does that answer your question? I kind of rambled a bit. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I like the point you made about how gold is an international asset. I think that's a point that Harry Brown also makes where it's something that you could take to another country if if a situation happened in your country, you would still have something where if your bonds and stocks were annihilated, you would still have some asset that would hold some value if you moved mm -hmm. to another country. Yep. But I'll also say that, you know, I feel like I've talked about gold a lot. I'm definitely not a gold shill. So no, gold isn't for everyone. And even if you look at the data and like, I could see the mathematical benefit of it, that doesn't mean you should invest in it just because, you know, it looks good on a page. If you don't trust it, then you shouldn't invest in it. And I, yeah. I, I know Harry Brown and I can't speak for him, but I would think that if for some reason gold went away and you weren't, he wasn't able to invest in that, that something like international diverse stocks would be something that would be an important thing to add to that type of portfolio. So you take that away, that diver, international diversification that you could get with gold, then having international diversification in terms of like, you know, international stocks would be a more important thing. So everyone has to look at their own situation and think about the different ways that are diversifying with their, the dip by market, by economic condition, by asset class, and find the right mix for them that they're comfortable with. Very cool. And uh, something I also wanted to ask you about. So what do you think about using leverage in a risk parity style portfolio? Um, some investors will often use leverage to boost the returns of this portfolio. What do you think about that approach? I guess, frankly, I, I don't like it. I think that for the vast majority of people, it's the, the fast track to, to losing your money. And I um, agree. <laughs> yeah. So leverage is one of those things where it's, I thought I've been looking for ways for a while to try to model leverage, like from a calculator sense. But the most difficult thing to model is how it actually fails. Because if you look at a back test, it will usually look fantastic because look, you have increased returns and it did great. But what it doesn't model is a margin call. And so mm -hmm. leverage is the number one way that investors go broke. And mm -hmm. it's not because they their the stock markets went up and down and they did something totally crazy with the markets where they just lost money. It's because they had a margin call and they, they bet too much that they weren't able to cover. And then if they were able to hold it and keep doing like it's in the back test, they'd recover just fine, but they don't have that choice. And so I've personally had friends who have multiple friends I've seen lose everything with leverage. So it's like, uh, I, between that and the many stories I've read about it, I think for the average investor, it's just not particularly safe choice. And I, I would recommend that instead of like trying to invest on leverage to boost your returns as a, younger investor, I would spend all that energy on trying to grow your career and save more. And you're going to come out so much more ahead with way more certainty. And so just be smart about it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was you, didn't you post something once about there's a guy in the, in the Bogglehead forum who used leverage and almost and got completely annihilated, like to the point where he was in serious debt. Was it you who posted that? Yeah, that was me. There's a very famous Boglehead thread, and I'll have to look it up. And I'm, maybe we could post it on the the podcast page or something about 
of Vester who posted in real time his like his experience of I think it was around the 2008 time most likely yeah where he, it was. he was invest, investing on leverage and he ended up very smart dude but he ended up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt by lose like not just lose everything but like it it was ruinous and so that was one of the more enlightening things I've ever read and it's very influential and you should do it yourself too because it shows how he did a really amazing job of being honest and sh sharing all the numbers. And you could read the emotions in his words of what it's like to be on top of the world, feeling total control, thinking you're going to do great. And even when it starts to go downhill, go downhill, he has backup plans. He's got strategies to get out of it and to see the whole ride down to, you know, losing beyond everything to being in huge debt and eventually working his way back out over like a long, arduous way. That's a worthy read for anyone who believes that leverage is somehow an, an easy fast track to wealth. Yeah, it's painful reading it. I think it starts in 2007. And then the mm -hmm. guy is like, yeah, I'm going to lever up the stock portfolio. And it's just, you're watching this car accident in slow motion. It's, yeah. it's horrible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So do you have any, so before we wrap up, do you have any departing thoughts, things you'd like to add for, for the listeners? Well, I guess uh, the main thing is uh, I think you're being a little modest. One of the things I did recently that I'm most excited about is was adding the weird portfolio to portfolio charts. So, you know, anyone who's a big fan of value stock geek should go check out the site and look at the, the back tested history for the weird portfolio, because I honestly think it's a very good asset allocation that appeals to a lot of the golden butterfly type mindsets, but also addresses some of the things you talked about, like international just diversification. So I, I really excited about having you on the site. And I actually had a question for you. Sure. Um, Thanks for the kind words, by the way. Yeah, I, sure. I appreciate so it. So I know that one of the reasons I wanted to add the weird portfolio to the site was that I get a lot of questions about the golden butterfly from people who had asked me about REITs and international stocks. So I was just kind of curious from like in your own words, why did you specifically add, pick those strategy? Yeah. Gotcha. So for international stocks, I'd say the major thing is that I was very worried. I, I'm always, I'm very, the whole portfolio is because I am a worrier. I am a mm -hmm. pessimistic <laughs> worrier and I wanted a portfolio that could kind of cover many different outcomes. So one of the outcomes I worry about the most is that the United States could wind up in a Japan style bubble. So I thought a lot about how I wanted to avoid a Japan style situation or say the US entered some bubble and then it took 30 years to get out of it. What are the best ways I could pivot away from that? So I thought mm -hmm. one way is to pivot to small cap value because small cap value has done well in Japan, even while the total market has gotten annihilated. Another way would be to position the portfolio towards other countries throughout the world, because I thought it was unlikely that every equity market in the world could enter a bubble at the same time. Usually you'll see pretty dramatically different valuations of different markets throughout the world. So that was the reason for the international diversification, I thought adding in some international stocks would reduce some of that risk. In terms of REITs, a big portion of it was because I wanted some robust protection in an inflationary environment. Now, mm -hmm. I think real estate is very unique in the sense that values over time need to go up with replacement values for real estate. They need to go up with rents. So I thought that if we did ever enter a period like the 1970s where inflation was going up for an entire decade, REITs would do pretty well. Now, REITs aren't going to do well if you have you know, a big stock drawdown, but mm -hmm. over like a 10-year high inflationary period, I would be shocked if REITs didn't perform pretty well because it has those unique characteristics that should respond to inflation. So those are the reasons that they have such a prominent role in the portfolio. Yeah. Well, I would say that the data bears out your ideas pretty well. So good job. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And the only reason I was able to test that that data was because I had access to your website. So <laughs> thank you for making those tools available. Um, it definitely helped me test out some of those ideas and develop a pretty robust asset allocation that I'm confident putting my personal savings into. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I think that's using it to that productive way is like the highest compliment. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's one thing to have, like I said, I have these theories about the way that the world should work. And then it's, uh, you need to be, I'm definitely a believer that you need to test those ideas. Like, is that mm -hmm. actually true? I've definitely been influenced by like the quants and the back testers in that sense, where you need to check and make sure like you have this perfect sounding thesis that sounds really good. Like, it, does it actually bear out in the data? 
Yep. And I think that's also, I have the same mindset and that's my, my engineering training speaking. It's the difference between a, like a, a scientist as an engineer. It's like you have your idea in your head of a theory of how things are supposed to work and how the world's supposed to work. And the engineer wants to go out and actually measure it to make sure you're right. <laughs> Absolutely. So like, uh, having so many theories over the years of my own that, you know, you either prove right or prove wrong. I just, I'm, that's why I bring that same mindset to investing too. Yeah. And it's especially true with, and the reason I realized a lot of that was because I did a lot of back testing of actual stock strategies back in the day. And what I often found was that everything was counterintuitive. Whatever you thought would work did not work. You know, like you would think for like one of the lessons I learned was I would often try to combine value with some quality factors, which I do in my own personal investing. But it's it's amazing how often like a quality factor you think would work really well, actually like worsens the returns. It's, it's always a, sh a shocking reality. So things in finance are always super counterintuitive. So that's mm -hmm. why it's more important than ever to actually test those ideas and, and see if it actually bears out in the data. Absolutely. So thank you for talking today. Thank you for coming onto this podcast. And what are the best ways for people to learn about you and reach you? Number one best way is to go to portfoliocharts.com. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram and just check out the site, check out the information, play with the tools for yourself, contact me, or you could join the discord as well. And I'm always happy to talk about asset allocation. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.